Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. First off, I'd like to give a huge thank you to all of my patrons for supporting the show and making it possible. Big thanks to Callum, Matthew, Jay, Paul, Tavernot, Carol, Benjamin, Fernando, Justin, Matt, and Joaquin. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my link tree or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number two, DM. Remember that 10% of my ad and patron money goes to support local LGBTQ plus youth via Encircle. Check out my link tree for more information. Next up, I want to do a quick plug for my Kickstarter, which is currently live. It is called Too Hot One Shot. As of recording this intro, it is over 70% funded. So I imagine by this time next week, we're probably funded and working on stretch goals. The stretch goals include some cool custom art for the project, some art that's going to depict certain scenes and scenery that are part of the one shot, and also art for the homebrew monsters that my friend Matthew and I designed for this adventure. So if you would be so kind as to go check that out, that would be great. Even if you throw a couple bucks our way, it would mean a ton to us. Now, if 5e isn't your jam, if that's not your game of choice, this is specifically written for 5e, but the basic rules can be applicable to any TTRPG that uses basic dice rolling mechanics to determine success and failure. So if you still want in on the fun, you can still plan a two hot one shot. Just grab those basic rules. Those are only four bucks. One more thing to announce before we jump into it. I am now an affiliate of 1985 games. 1985 Games makes a ton of tabletop accessories from 2D terrain that you can cut out and then use on your maps and take anywhere because it's light and easy to pack to dice and other accessories. I bought a few packs of their 2D terrain. I love them because they don't take up a ton of space, but also I can use them in lots of different scenarios and they always I always have a piece that I need from trees and rocks to uh, ships on the sea to all sorts of different scenarios that, that you might run into. So I highly recommend you go check out 1985 Games, check out all of the normal places, the episode notes, and my link tree for the link to 1985 Games. If you use that link, you're going to get 10% off whatever you buy, whether it be the 2D terrain they've got or their new VHS dice sets that they've created. And I'm also going to get 10% as well. So it's a way to save yourself some cash and support the show. So I really appreciate that. Check out 1985 Games. I highly recommend what they're doing. All right. Thank you all for being patient. I know it's not easy to get through the intros of episodes, especially when you're particularly excited about the guest like me. So without further ado, it's time to introduce this week's guest, Dragna Karta. Dragna is well known for his work in the Curse of Strahd DM community, both on Reddit and on the actual play podcast and stream, Twice Bitten. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Dragna Carta. I've been playing D&D for going on, I want to say 14, 15 years by this point. The exact date I'm pretty fuzzy on, but it was around when 4th edition was coming out that I started playing. It was... I saw this big red box, or maybe my parents did at Barnes & Noble or something, got it as a birthday mm. present or Christmas present, and I had no idea what the heck it was. All my family knew was that I liked fantasy, and I liked some kind of games. Pick it up, have no idea what the heck it is, think it's some kind of weird board game, and I just don't understand the rules. Eventually, I wind up understanding it, and from there on out, I'm just off of the races. I drop off for a while, on and off for years, and then in 2016, 2017, I pick up Curse of Strahd for the first time, and... 
I am absolutely, for some reason, infatuated with it. I wind up running it for some close friends. I wind up taking onto the Curse of Strahd subreddit on the Reddit community, getting into conversations there, discussions, wind up seeing some folks post their thoughts on the module and say, hey, maybe I should share mine too. So I started a little series called Lessons for Running Curse of Strahd, which eventually turns into a larger project called Curse of Strahd Reloaded. And that's where my interest became an addiction. I can leave Barovia anytime I want. I just choose not to. <laughs> nice. I, I at least get that joke. <laughs> yeah. You know, the mists come for us all and eventually they'll find you. But for me, I, I've spent a good five or six years there at this point, And it's been incredibly rewarding. I've written chapters revamping slash assisting or guiding people through this, what is a very complex sandboxy, but also very fulfilling and narratively engaging module. One of Wizard's best, if not the best, in my opinion. Well, maybe second to one or two others, but we can talk about that. And yeah. just getting to see the creativity of the community, people coming together with so many ideas, getting so invested in the characters. And as of lately, the past year or two, I've kind of started moving away from Curse of Strahd and more to general D&D content. Started working on a Patreon. I'm currently looking at a producing some kind of D, new DM tutorial resources as well as for more intermediate and advanced stuff. And I've taken a hack at some other parts of homebrewing D&D content as well. So very excited to be here. I'm always loving to talk all things D&D. And yeah. I know you come highly recommended. Uh, I, I did listen to <laughs> most of Twice Bitten, which we will chat about later. But uh, yeah, a lot of people, not when I'm chatting you know, publicly, but like privately, people will say, oh, you should have so-and-so on. You should ask this person, that person. Uh, your name has come up more than once. And so uh, it's good to finally get you behind the mic and, and tell the people what you think about running games. Well, thank you. Really glad to be here. All right. So you got your introduction with the that set that your parents bought you and, and kind of really were were bitten by uh, Curse of Strahd and, and, and really got into it at that point. So uh, I'd love to know your experience running games. And then also we can start getting into the mistakes you feel like you've made, uh, problems that, that have happened and, and stuff that you've learned from blunders behind the screen. Like I said, I started with fourth edition. That was kind of my intro to the game. And I remember back in the day, there was this, you know, before Reddit was really big and all these modern social media sites, there was a forum. I can't remember what it was called, but it was kind of like this sort of West March's massively multiplayer idea. And that's how I got my intro to fourth edition, you know, playing online mm. after playing a little bit with friends and family. The thing about 4E is that it's a very specific kind of, of gameplay. It's very distinct from quote unquote normal D&D or traditional D&D. And eventually a few friends of mine tried to take me, get me to take a few stabs at Pathfinder or I think Traveler and just kind of all over the place. But mostly I stuck with 4E for a few years playing on and off very infrequently, especially when things uh, started to happen in a few other places. But eventually, you know, when 5th edition came out, hit the scene, I got into that really big. And like, like I said, started playing Curse of Strahd with a few friends. I started playing a few games online, digitally, finding a few random folks and just sort of getting my bearings there with some homebrew campaigns. I think I ran a, uh, a Magic the Gathering inspired, like in a Strahd style campaign very briefly for mm. one point. But, you know, as many online campaigns do, it kind of fell apart after a few weeks to months. But, you know, yeah. I learned some stuff out of that. I found my footing. And then eventually I start running Curse of Strahd. And this is a lot of fun. Strahd especially is a villain that you can really get inside the head of. Brovi is a place that you can really live in, so to speak. And so as I started going through it, you know, you learn a lot when you're running a module like that with all of these different moving parts. Because a lot of Curse of Strahd is DM created. It's very sandboxy. It's very reactive to what the players do and choose. Especially because the module doesn't provide you with scripts for what Strahd do, what some major NPCs do as things in the valley change. You've got to be on your toes the whole time. 
And so this actually plays into one of the worst mistakes I ever made, kind of my first major mm. mistake, which actually led to us retconning an entire session out of existence. So <laughs> I can't remember exactly what happened, but the gist of it was that the players knew a priest in the town of Valachian Strahd, and the priest was a good friend of theirs. And at one point, and I can't remember why, a noblewoman in the town of Valaki that they were in kidnapped the priest. Again, I can't recall her exact motives. I think she might have been doing it on behalf of Strahd or maybe of her own volition or some purpose. But she kidnaps him. The players track the clues. They learn that she's taken him to her manor. They do some sneaking around. It's a nice little spy mission. And then they get down to the basement where she has him, you know, tied up, ready for some kind of cult ritual sacrifice. And the players just kind of start trying to negotiate. And I have a really weird moment because at this point I prepped for this great battle. The cultists, I've got their stat blocks, I've got their weapons. I'm ready for this to be an all-out brawl. And then the players start being eminently reasonable. And <laughs> I don't know what to do. The monks start saying, look, we don't want to fight. You're, we know that you're a relatively reasonable person. Maybe we could talk this out. And again, I haven't prepped for this. I don't know what to do. I'm just flying in blind here. And I'm like, I, I prepped combat. Maybe it makes sense for the NPC, but it's not going to work. She, she needs to shut them down. I, I cannot let this go because I don't know where the story will go if I let her let the priest go. Because that doesn't make any sense. Because then why should why would she have kidnapped him in the first place? It'll just feel weird. So I have her completely out of character by what they know of her. Just reject all of their thoughts and then have a battle with them. Everyone rolls initiative. The players are kind of unhappy about it, but they go along with it. There's a fight that, yeah. you know, everyone's heart isn't really in it. And we wrap up the session yeah. with them kind of murdering or KOing everyone in the basement. Everyone's pretty not feeling great about this. I'm not feeling great about this, especially because one of my favorite NPCs is now dead or KO'd, and it just doesn't feel like anything that happened makes sense. Mm -hmm. And there are all these just pieces that are strewn all over the map, and I don't really know where to go from here. So I spent a few days thinking about it, and on the day before our next session, I go to my players and I say, hey, I'm not feeling too good about how the last session went, and I think you guys are feeling a little weird too. So how about this? We skip tomorrow's session, give me a little more time to prep, and instead I'm going to retcon some things that I think will make for a more interesting adventure, a more interesting campaign, and lead somewhere that makes a little bit more sense. How does that sound? And the players are like, I guess, okay, we'll, we'll give it a try if you're really feeling that weird about it. And so I do. And so I change things so that instead the noblewoman isn't involved. Instead, what happened was she tipped off Strahd to his location, not knowing exactly what would happen, but working for him. Strahd comes by charms the priest, forces him into his carriage, and takes him to the castle. And so now the players want to go to the castle to rescue their friend, and they're off the races. And now we have an actual hook leading somewhere with all the NPCs playing their parts and doing things that are reasonable and rational for them, instead of kind of twisting things in certain ways to create certain set pieces or cinematic fight scenes that I wanted to create in my imagination. Now instead it's just characters doing character things and just letting things unfold. Hmm. So you said something interesting there, which is that your players... They didn't seem overly enthused or like, yeah, you should change everything that happened there. They were just kind of going along with it anyway. Uh, why do you think that is just out of curiosity? I think with D&D &D in general, one of the biggest things is that you want to immerse yourself in the world, especially a certain kind of player that is very into the story, very into the non-player characters, the relationships at the table. And yeah. when you roll back a session, there's this kind of sense of not really selling response, but a sense of, you know, this is what happened. I'm fine with it. You know, it wasn't how I would have done it myself. It's not what I have preferred, but this is the world that we were in. And we just kind of got to accept that. They weren't resistant to the idea, but they were just kind of like, right. you know, the world does what it does. And if you really want to roll it back, we can, but we're not super upset if you don't. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. But 
you know, to be honest, like I was expecting them to say, well, yeah, we should, because we didn't like that, just kind of the way you were framing it. So surprised, but also I think it's it's very self-aware of you to notice these things during the session and then to realize that it would probably work better and just feel better for everybody if you change the way things were. What was the result, though? I think I may have cut you off. Did they end up enjoying you changing things? And did they mention that at all after the fact? They definitely did enjoy where it led. They wound up going to dinner at Castle Ravenloft with Strahd. It led to this whole thing. Unfortunately, I don't think they were able to save the priest, but there was a development of relationships and everything made sense. And some of the stuff they were interested in Velaki was preserved. So on the whole, I felt like it was a much stronger outcome. And it also led somewhere where the one before just kind of dead ended at this cinematic set piece that was great in my head, but not so much on paper. I've only heard uh, maybe a handful of stories of people deciding to retcon whole sessions. That's really impressive and uh, really interesting. And, and it's good to hear that it works, you know, if people feel like they need to do something like that, you know, that it is possible. So cool. All right. Uh, what about favorite memories from your games? Uh, really fun stuff, really epic stuff, really meaningful or emotional or heartfelt stuff as a result of role play or combat or whatever. Sure. So I think I'm actually going to have to kind of cheat here and take three favorite memories of the same moment, which is I've run Curse of Strahd three times. And the climax of Curse of Strahd is appropriately killing Strahd and ending the curse in the land. That moment when the group first challenges Strahd, having risen to this point after entering Barovia lost and confused and powerless, and first off challenging him openly and saying, we're going to take you down. And that final climax when he is undone, when he is destroyed by the Sun Sword or by some other means, that moment of victory, of relief, of exaltation, it's just, it's so incredibly cathartic, where you have these players who have been tormented for so long in this little box that this vampire tyrant has kept them in, and in a moment, they come into their own, they become the heroes they were meant to be, they destroy their tormentor, and they free the land and their friends from his oppression, and that moment is so perfectly encapsulated, not just by Straw's disintegration as he releases his hatred and fury, but as they walk out onto the balcony of Castle Ravenloft. And for the first time in over 400 years, the sun rises over the land. It's just such a powerful moment. Every time, as many times as I've run Christopher Straw, that moment is always just so incredibly satisfying. Yeah, I don't think it's cheating. I think that's a perfectly acceptable answer. Uh, we'll have to get into whether or not you would run Curse of Strahd a fourth time here uh, <laughs> in a second. But yeah, I love it. Have you ever had a player or a group of players totally throw a wrench in your plans? And what did you do about it? Sure. So that would actually come, I think, from Twice Bit in the Curse of Draw campaign that I ran for five other Curse of Draw DMs, where we were really trying to push the bounds of the rules as written module and see what kind of stories it would tell. And one of the fun things about running the game for DMs is that they're always thinking, their brains are always moving, maybe in the sense of role play or character development. But I had one player, Linus, a former player of mine and a friend and a DM as well, who's very good at puzzles, who is not a classic optimizer, but always loves thinking laterally, thinking in creative ways to overcome and surmount obstacles. It was toward the end of the game, and he'd actually told me about this ahead of time, so I wasn't really... I wasn't surprised by it because he'd been planning it for a while and like a good, a good player, he let me know in advance just so I could expect it. So it could be a really cool moment, but it did mess things up a little bit. And by mess things up, I mean totally unbalanced things in a way that was entirely incredibly entertaining. He had the corpse of Strahd's right-hand man, uh, Chamberlain Rahadin. This is a guy who's lived in the castle for 400 years, who's been by Strahd's side, who knows all his secrets, knows the castle, whatever. He shows up, they fight him, they kill him. 
Linus's character, Amity, is a bard from the College of Spirits. So she's all about seances, necromancy, communicating with the dead, that sort of thing. Notably, Linus has been looking at the spells that he can learn with, I believe it was his magical secrets or something. So he's found the spell Summon Greater Demon. And most people would use a spell to summon, you know, a a Barlgora or something to get a little bit of an edge in a fight. Linus doesn't do that. Instead, Linus looks down and finds the stat block for the Dybbuk, which I think is from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. The Dybbuk is actually a pretty trash combatant. In combat, it's, you know, perfectly fine for its stat block for its CR, but it's nothing special. But what it's really good at is that it can possess a dead body and then have access to all of the dead body's knowledge. You can command it to obey you. Furthermore, Linus also knew that Esmeralda, an NPC ally, had access to Magic Circle, which can, like, trap demons in place for a time. Yeah, And there was this whole other confluence of factors and spells, and Linus did all the logistics. But the gist was that they had this demon possessing a corpse in this magic circle. It couldn't escape. It had like disadvantage on the saving throws, and there was a really high DC or something. Basically, they had this poor Dybbuk imprisoned in the body of the right-hand man of their greatest foe, and they spent the next 45 minutes of in-game time. I mean, I made them keep rolling, and the thing kept failing at saving throws. Just peeling its brain for anything you know what traps are in ravenloft what spells does strahd know what npcs should be aware of you know what is strahd like how do we get under his skin and all that sort of thing and i just like give us a map of every floor of the castle and what rooms are the treasures placed in and it was absolutely nuts like i i if it had been an actual group and not a group of dms i unironically might have just taken out the chapter on castle ravenloft and handed it to them like <laughs> they knew what they were doing. It was like this was a way of because Lin- Linus has run Curse of Strahd before, so this is just his way of unofficially getting access to the knowledge that out of game he already had. Because right. they were all very good about not metagaming, but Linus was very tricksy, and I respect that. So what they wound up doing was they got everything they could possibly want. They started looting the heck out of the castle. They avoided all the traps. It was glorious, and it really gave them a huge leg up when they were going against Strahd. And I thought that was hilarious. It definitely threw a wrench in Strahd's plans. I knew to prepare for it. And this is one lesson that, you know, I would recommend everyone take away is that Linus wanted to throw a wrench in Strahd's plans, but not a wrench in mine. And because he told me literally like four months in advance that this is what he was planning on doing, I had everything prepared to tell him. And like, he told me all of his questions and he said, I'm going to do this as soon as I level up the next time I level up. And it was just a really great time and an absolutely fantastic story. <laughs> I love it. And you're right. A great way to to kind of just say, okay, we all know what's here but now we can actually know in character. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right. This kind of segues nicely. What do you feel makes an ideal player of tabletop role-playing games and also a player at your tables? Sure. So I'm actually going to answer this from kind of a sideways perspective. So let me start by listing what I think makes for a good D&D dungeon master. Okay. For starters, you're organized, you're on time. You are attentive. You're engaged in the game. Even when you're not talking, you're listening to others. You're taking an active interest. You create opportunities to let other people at the table shine. You try to create content that other people will be interested in. You take an active interest in what's going on around you. Know your stuff. You keep things moving. Know the rules pretty well. You can you know your own stuff really well, but you're, you, you're open to talking to other people if maybe you get something wrong. You take an active interest in everyone having fun at the table. You work around to make sure that everyone's having a good time. You keep an active eye on all the other players, you know, socially, emotionally. How are they doing? Checking in, making sure that you're putting the spotlight on them if they haven't had the spotlight for a while. Yeah. And that's what a good player is to me. All the things that make a good DM a good DM is what makes a good player a good player, which, you know, maybe not coincidentally is why... And this is not to throw shade at my former Curse of Strahd players who run not DMs, but this is honestly probably why I had such a fantastic time running Curse of Strahd for a group of all DMs, because they were fantastic in that respect. 
all of those respects. Mm. They knew their stuff. They were on. They were on time. They were engaged. They took an interest. They they collaborated. They they came together. They you know developed relationships with each other. With each other characters. They took an interest in the world. They brought content that was engaging that people could invest themselves in. But they also got invested in other people's content. You know they role played generously. They came to the table ready to have a team role playing game, not a monologue. And I think that's what an ideal D and D player is to me: someone who plays generously and thoughtfully. Whether you're a DM or a regular PC, I think it applies both ways. Yeah, that's very much in line with a school of thought I see a lot, which is that the DM is also a player, right? And if we're all playing mm-hmm. tabletop role-playing games together, we call them players and dungeon masters. And you know, you don't refer to a DM as a player very often, but they are playing the game just like players are. It's just from a different perspective, right? So yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it kind of it works both ways, right? Because for me, I like to bring players up where, you know, I think players should should have, you know, that kind of higher bar that they should aspire to. And at the same time, I also kind of like to bring DMs down where I think that, you know, as DMs, it's so easy for us to assume so much responsibility for the table. We're scheduling, calendaring, we're organizing things, we're checking in with everyone, we're managing every kind of social issue that might crop up from time to time. And we're always expected to, to play generously, which is, of course, is what everyone should be doing. But I think it's important to not view the DM as the parent of the table or the leader of the table. At most, they should be first among equals, or at the very least, an equal in a slightly different role. And I think that far more than the DM, the players have so much power to turn a good game into a great game. And expecting the DM to just show up and put it all on the line, and the players to just kind of passively consume that, I don't think that's what D&D is about. Yeah. The DM is another player, but the DM is just a player. But that also means that the players are also... They should aspire to be what everyone expects a DM to do anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Taking responsibility for your own fun, kind of, and for the fun of others. It definitely is how I feel. It is, it's not like a, a great weight on my shoulders, but I definitely feel the pressure to make sure that our people are having fun. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. very real. Uh, all right. Uh, do you have any homebrew rules or things that you have in your games that you really like that you feel like add to the fun of the game? Sure. So it's not exactly a rule. So again, this is kind of a cheaty answer, but more of a whole system. One of the things that I've been working on this year, a kind of a passion project that started off in February or so, March or so, I was talking with a friend about combat balance in D&D, about a number of modules. There's always a lot of talk online about, oh, challenge ratings are made up. Everything doesn't matter. Nothing works. Combat balancing is an art, not a science. Just kind of throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And that really annoyed me. So what I did was I set off to try to prove them wrong. I was going to do all the math, do all the research, do the analysis on challenge rating, on encounter building, and I was going to show everyone that it actually worked out in practice. And what I found was that it didn't. <laughs> Not necessarily challenge ratings. I, I kind of proved, just falsified my own hypothesis in that respect, but in the sense of the actual encounter building system, in that I found that there, it didn't work. And so I wound up doing a deep dive into it for a number of months, kind of doing some mathematical analysis, reaching out to some friends. Again, Linus popped up here because he's a total math whiz. But for most of it, it was a lot of just a lot of Google spreadsheets, a lot of, you know, figuring out everything, trying to make things work, figuring out how adding more monsters affects player health, affects the adventuring day, and kind of piecing all that together, because I've been talking about all that stuff for a long time. Finally, what I wound up coming with the other side out the other side with was what I call Challenge Ratings 2.0, which is a wholly revamped guide to combat building and balancing in fifth edition that I wound up sharing on Reddit, on Twitter, getting some feedback. Uh, it's currently in the public playtesting phase. And I wrote like an article as well as an accompanying work in progress research paper to explain how all the math works if people are interested. 
one of the nice things about that is that as soon as I put that out there and started sharing it with you know both private playtesters and the public playtesters, is that because of the way I'd analyzed the math and found the ways in which the 5e combat building system was just fundamentally broken and fixed those. And I could talk about it if you're interested, how, yeah. like how exactly that works. Yeah, let's do it. So the basic gist is that I'll run through the usual simulation or the usual thought experiment that I run. And I'll, I'll try to be pretty quick about it. So imagine a goblin. You're fighting a goblin. His name is Boblin. For simplicity's sake, we'll say that he has 10 hit points and he deals one damage per round. And he, the PCs have enough damage to kill him in exactly one round. Yeah. But before he dies, he's going to deal exactly one damage. We're going to say that uh, for this power, Boblin has, you know, we'll say some kind of power of one. You know, he's going to be, he's going to deal exactly one damage in the entire combat that he's around, right? Let's talk about a goblin called Harmlin or Swordlin, let's say. Swordlin is exactly the same hit points as Boblin but has, you know, this really big, ugly mace and an anger problem. So Swordlin deals four damage per round instead of one. So Swordlin will deal exactly four damage and then immediately die. Same with Shieldlin, another another goblin that's Boblin's friend. Shieldlin has the same amount of damage as Boblin, one damage per round, but has four times as many hit points, 40 hit points. So Shieldlin's going to stick around for four rounds, and each of those rounds, Shieldlin will deal one point of damage. So that's four point of da- points of damage, the same as Swordlin, right? But four rounds, yeah, cool. Now meet the Boblin Squad. The Boblin Squad is Boblin's loyal acolytes. They are also goblins with the same stats as Boblin. Each of them has 10 hit points, and each of them has deals one damage per round. Like Swordlin, they're dealing four damage per round. One damage each for goblins. Uh-huh. Like Shieldlin, they have 40 combined hit points. So assuming they all die at the same time at the end of combat, which they don't exactly, but for our purposes, we can say that they do. Believe me, I've done the math. It doesn't really change much. It's just a little bit of a fuzzing factor, depending on when they die. Uh-huh. But over the course of the combat, they're going to deal 16 points of damage over the course of the entire combat. That's four goblins, four times the amount of experience points, so to speak. But they're doing 16 times as much damage. They're not equivalent to Swordland or Shieldland. They're four times as powerful as Swordland or Shieldland. And the reason for this is that when you add multiple monsters to an encounter, they are both adding more firepower, more damage per round, and they're also adding more hit points, which forces the enemy to punch through those hit points before they can hit the other monster's hit points. Right. So you're both increasing the encounter's offensive power and defensive power simultaneously. So the whole thing is increasing quadratically, not linearly. And that's as much math as I'll go into for now. <laughs> and so what I found was that the 5th edition system does not account for this. The math is totally broken, totally borked. And what I wound up doing was going through it as much as I could to find an approximation. It's not perfect, but it's an approximation that reasonably tracks both you know, how PC... Offense and defense increase over time, how monster offense and defense increases over time, corresponding with, you know, level and challenge rating approximately. Yeah, and I've seen some of these before. I've seen your charts over a couple of builds and, like, the damage output and hit points and stuff. Yeah. Yep, and that's kind of all the math underlying the system. But the system itself is actually pretty straightforward. I split into two halves, a basic guide and advanced guide. The basic guide is just, you know, it's very straightforward. Just find your PCs, find what level they are add their power together, because I added something called power, which is basically a replacement for experience points. It's by level or CR, given, basically. And so find their total power. It's just adding it up, basic, like, you know, adding together experience points. Then find how hard you want it to be. Do you want them to lose, you know, a quarter of their hit points, half their hit points, all of their hit points? You know, do you want to have to work extra hard? And, you know, so you you find whatever multiplier that is, and you just multiply it by the total power. And then what you've got left is the amount of power you have left to spend on monsters. It's super easy, super straightforward, no futzing around. You know, the advanced guide goes into a little more depth. It involves, you know, multi-classing magic items, you know, weird stuff like that. The nice thing was that as soon as I rolled this out, you know, into private and public playtesting, I was hoping for it to do well. It was working well in my private home games, but people were giving it rave reviews saying like, this is the first time I've been able to make balanced combat encounters. You know, all the, the math is working out. The monsters are, you know, 
they're taxing the players, but not too much. Or I made an encounter that I wanted to be really tough, and it was really tough. They had to struggle, but they came out on top in the end. And things are just turning out exactly how I'm planning them to with a little bit of variance. And I was really happy with that because, you know, this is part of the, the core D&D framework because D&D 5th edition spends so much of its word count and its time on combat. But the balancing, especially nowadays where people, the traditional D&D player model was, you know, I don't mind if I lose, but I'm going to optimize and strategize as hard as I can. You know, nowadays, a lot of players, understandably, they don't want to lose. They want to tell a story. They want to do what their character does, which is not to say, you know, be rude or antisocial. But if that involves playing suboptimally, they're fine with that. But they don't want the story to end. So they expect balanced encounters, like in Skyrim or something. The fact that 5e fails to provide this, but that CR 2.0 now suddenly does that, I felt was you know, really, really valuable. And I was really happy to hear people saying that they were finding it helpful. So I'm still working on it. It's still in the public playtesting phase. But at some point over the next, you know, hopefully six months or so, I'm going to finish out that research paper, add a few more, you know, monster PC benchmarks just to tighten up the numbers a little bit. And then hopefully just put it for free on DMs Guild and let people use it publicly. But, you know, you can already get it. It's, it's already online if you Google it. But hmm. yeah, this is very interesting to me because as a DM, I found myself having to balance stuff on the fly to compensate for this kind of thing, right? Like it's a lot of work to each encounter have to adjust things to make it work for what you want it to work for. Yeah, so this sounds like it'd be very useful. And I do understand um, from a mathematical perspective why you kind of explained it the way that you have and why, why it works the way you did. So from your analysis, I like haven't looked into challenge rating as it currently stands. So challenge rating, the way they calculate it now is purely based on what? Is it just damage output and hit points? or The way that they do it now, you know, challenge rating as it stands is actually relatively solid. It's not great. XP values are actually kind of untied. They're kind of untethered from the actual powers you would calculate it from DPR and hit points. But on the whole, CR is actually not terrible as a way of just measuring monsters' output, damage, you know, what they call effective hit points based on AC, or what they call effective DPR based on to hit bonuses. So CR is not really the problem, but the problem is what you do with that, because using experience points, the way that Wizards does it is you find the experience points of all the monsters, you add them all together, and then you find how many monsters you have, and there's like a set multiplier, you use like times 1.5, times 2, times 2.5 or something. You know, if you've got a party of like four PCs, right, and like exactly four monsters of like the same CR exactly. So if you squint, it pretty much works out kind of. Yeah. But, you know, if you add a single additional player, the whole thing breaks down. Largely because if I go from four players to five, I'm increasing the offense by 25%. I'm increasing the defense by 25%. And, you know, what you wind up doing is you're increasing the entire group's, the party's power by more than 50%, if I remember correctly. You know, you're having this huge outsized impact just by adding one more player to the party. And that has a huge impact on how everything, you know, gets processed on the ground in the battlefield, where suddenly Mm -hmm. the players are dancing through encounters that should have made just four players, just one player difference, have give real pause. And you go up to you know, six players, my God, seven players, and the whole thing just goes out the window if it wasn't already. Like, there's a reason why people talk about action economy, but for so long, they didn't really know what that meant. We were just kind of, you know, oh, you have more actions, you have more monsters, you win. And, you know, we didn't really know why that happened, but it's because of this principle of adding additional new monsters or characters increases your power both offensively and defensively. It's not linear, it's quadratic. 5e is just linear, and that is why it's just so broken. Yeah, that's funny. And it explains why things changed so much when I added a fifth player to my game. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, man. Cool. Well, glad smart people like you are figuring this out, uh, whereas I have just been adding hit points and damage dice and stuff to make it work. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. Cool. And now, a word from How Not to DM's sponsors. 
First up, let's start with a word from my friends way out in New Zealand, Dice Legends. Amidst the wreckage and recovery from war, a new secret war begins in the alleys, docks, gambling pits, and sewers of Aratai. A war of assassins, smugglers, crime lords for the underbelly of the city. Caught in this struggle, a bounty hunter and a thief for hire find themselves entrusted with the protection and life of a very special child. This is a story from the shadows of Aratai. Premieres November 12th on Dice Legends. The Shadows of Aratai is coming out very soon. It's going to be a five-part stream on Dice Legends stream, so check the episode notes for the link to their Twitch channel. Go ahead and follow it and make sure that you don't miss it. And if you do miss their live streams, then you can always watch their videos on demand later. Next up, let's hear from our friends at The Home Bakery with their new release on drive-thru RPG, The Skeleton Closet. The Skeleton Closet is a pre-made magic shop designed to seamlessly fit into your 5th edition game, no preparation needed. It contains 5 NPCs with stat blocks, relationship events for returning customers, and role-playing tips, 40 magic items based on curio shops and necromancy, and 4 subclasses, the Bardic College of Scribes, the Druidic Circle of Ritual, the Red Death Rogue, and the School of Soul Stitching Wizard, all of which are tied to the gothic aesthetic of the Skeleton Closet. Available on DriveThruRPG now link in the episode description. And finally, podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. Are you a podcast or video content creator who wishes you spent more time creating the content you love and less time doing the boring editing that bogs you down? Check out podcasteditors.online or videoeditors.online to see all of their awesome rates and offerings for editing content. Buy a few hours of editing a la carte or buy their bulk plans if you have more content that you need created. Check out the links in the episode notes for more information about both podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. And now let's get back to the second half of the show, starting off with Quickfire Chaos. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! This week on Quickfire Chaos, Dragon and I are going to roll on some random D100 tables from the internet and create a scenario to roleplay. Okay, well, let's start off with the tables then. Uh, if you want to grab your dice, we'll start rolling. All right, first thing I got, let me... I do not have any physical dice in front of me, so let's go to rollthedice.online, which I guess is a real site. The first number I got is 26. Okay, 26 on the voice table is twangy sharply accentuates vowels uh so a lot of diphthongs and stuff for the linguistically inclined twangy and accentuates all those vowels yeah all right next up is personality 88 please rebellious defying or resisting some established authority government or tradition insubordinate inclined to rebel i like it I'm defying your authority. I don't recognize it. I never did, and I never will. I never will. Okay. Job. What, what does your NPC do? 
all day. You know, I have to check my resume. Let, let me let, let me look back on this. It's it's eighty three. Ah, we've had this one before too. That's funny. Uh, beekeeper. <laughs> I'm keeping my bees. That's all I wanted to do in the world. But then suddenly, the the militia, the imperial army, winds up at my doorstep, and suddenly, instead of keeping my bees, I'm directing them into battle. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, uh, last Muggle thing, honey, on, right under their noses. <laughs> You're doing very well. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> fetch quest or city quest? So fetch quest could be anywhere. City quest is kind of like random stuff happening in town. Let's, Let's go for a fetch quest. Okay. Last but not least, the fetch quest. Alrighty, for this one, I got a 59. A load of energy slash power slash fusion cells or other magical equivalent. So like something that powers magical stuff and you get to decide. You get to flavor it however you want. Alrighty. I will be a, a well-dressed gentleman in a tricorn hat with a very ornate rapier at his side. I think I'm going kind of like pirate gentleman vibes. So you can kind of set the scene um, like like DMs do, just kind of explain what I see as I'm walking up or, or something happens and, and, you know, it kind of catches my interest. I'll let you take it away. All right. As I see you walking down the kind of dirt road of this smaller town, I cough and say under my breath, hey, friend. I think you might not want to uh, walk on on a little, so, might so proudly with that at your side. The Imperials, they don't can take kind of do that. Uh, so I'll kind of turn my head with, with flourish, you know, my feather f- on my hat flapping in the wind a little bit, and I kind of look your way and, and pat the uh, the hilt of my sword and, and say to you, Oh, what, what are you talking about, sir? What, what, what are those words for? Has someone uh, been hurting your feelings? Hmm. Well... I'll wager if you look around, you see the faces in this town, or maybe hear some of the whispers. Come on over here. I think that you're, the way you're looking, you're raring for some trouble, and, you know, I like to take it upon myself to make sure that folks that mosey on through, that they don't wind up at the wrong sort and maybe wind up in the right sort instead. Well, Might that catch I, your interest, stranger? Oh, I've been known to stir up some trouble in my day, and trouble, in fact, is uh, my middle name, as my mother would say. So, uh, yeah, you've, you've piqued me interest. What do you have for me, sir? Well, if you're looking around, you'll notice that a few of the folks are looking a little bit, um, well, a little bit withdrawn, a little bit unsure. The way things that have been going around here these days, well, you don't look two paces before you got a whole horde of inspectors and investigators looking at everything you got. Now, for me, I represent what you might call a concerned group of citizens who've been looking at maybe doing a little something bad and maybe helping folks like you walk a little more freely in these streets. Hmm. Maybe folks like them and i'm gonna nudge my head toward with guards you know about a quarter mile down the street a little less comfortably there's one little problem with that you see recently there was a little bit of a hullabaloo in town a friend of mine was working to brew a little something up something that might help us take care of the army supply depot in town and maybe feel the guards around it got caught up in a little something and a few of my own materials were confiscate potential contraband for inspection now as far as i know they haven't looked into it yet which is good the material in question looks like honey you know you see my friends there buzzing around in the happy air happy as can be that's how i make my living but it just so happens that if you and again my friend handles this myself i'm not quite the magic type i just kind of do what i need do what i know but if you had the right kind of chanting a few little words the right little nectar there's this particular kind of pure magical energy manner, he called it. And if you had just the right 
drops. It turns this shade of honey gold. Put a stamp on it, put a stick on it, it looks indistinguishable from, well, a good old hive's crop. Hmm. The problem is, if we don't have what's in those jars, if we don't have what's in that covered wagon that's currently being held in the depot as contraband, well, you see, a few of our plans, well, instead of going up in flames, might go out like a puff of wind. So, the thing is, this stuff is pretty highly volatile. And, well, I think that with your help, now me, myself, and my buzzing little friends, we can't sneak into that warehouse. But you, the way you wear that hat, the way you're sauntering around, the way you wear that sword at your side makes me think that maybe you might know a thing or two about getting places you shouldn't be. Would I be wrong? Well, I'm not sure if, if you know me personally or if you've heard my reputation, but apparently it precedes me. Um, I'm quite, uh, I'm, uh, quite proficient at, at sneaking into places I'm not supposed to be. So it appears that uh, you've got yourself a little smuggling problem then. Or uh, uh, it's not a problem yet, but it could be. Uh, I, th I think for the right price I might be able to obtain uh, these crates of jars for you. Uh, of course, you know, uh, I'll need to uh, put together a crew, but uh, I think I can accomplish this thing for you. I do think that perhaps we could come to an agreement. And with that, if you wouldn't mind just, well... They're already in the place where we want them, so maybe you can, once we've worked out all the details and you've able to mosey your way on in there, say hello to the fine gentleman, and perhaps not so much as a bio leave. Give them a little bit of a bang to remember us by. How's that sound? Oh, it sounds like it could be a lot of fun for me and at least a good story to tell over a, a mug of fine ale. Uh, I think I, you've got yourself a deal, friend. Where should we meet and when? Let's say sunset. There's a patch of groves out to the west of here around, oh, little over three quarters of a mile, close to the tree line. A little bit of grove conceals it, but I've got some hives set up there. You'll hear my friends buzzing, but don't worry, they won't hurt you. I'll be there. A few of my friends, too. Bring your crew, and we'll start with uh, making the negotiations. And I hold that hand. How's that sound, friend? I uh, take off my very nice leather glove and I shake. Well, my friend, I think this could be very profitable for both of us. I take a bow. I think so, too. <laughs> Pleasure speaking with you, and, well, till sunset. I tip my cap and, uh, with a flourish, swing around on my heel and, and begin heading the other way. <laughs> All right, and scene. <laughs> oh, excellent. That was a good one. We've had the beekeeper before, but, yeah, definitely a different angle, which I love. Let's dive in now. So we've mentioned Twice Bitten a handful of times here, but if you would, please, for the folks at home who've never heard of Twice Bitten Curse of Stroud, tell us a little bit about the project, how it started, and kind of how it went, and whether or not you feel like you achieved the goals that you set when you started it. So Twice Bitten, as a concept, started in the Curse of Stroud subreddit Discord server. And one of the things that you quickly learn about Curse of Stroud is that there are three things that every that almost every DM winds up changing, either because of the community or just because they stumble that upon it themselves. The first is that they always make Strahd interested in kidnapping Irina, who is the, the target of his kind of stalkerish interests for the duration of the module. Yeah. You know, instead of, you know, kind of a passive, they make him more active. The second thing that they wind up doing is they rig the Troka reading. Usually the Troka reading is a little kind of fortune telling that the players can get to learn where the artifacts are, that can help them defeat Strahd, where their friends are. And, you know, there's a lot of, pretty trash option. So pretty much every DM winds up rigging it. So you know what you're going to get ahead of time. And the third thing that everyone changes is the epilogue. 
the epilogue of Curse of Strahd, as written by Chris Perkins in the Year of Our Lord 2016, says that you're going to kill Strahd. You can escape Barovia, but within a few months, Strahd comes back. The mists descend, the wolves return, the darkness covers the land, and everyone huddles in their homes and waits for heroes to come save them again as Strahd reassumes his throne. Everyone hates this. We've spent literally months, if not years, of out-of-game time. We've spent 10 levels working to kill this guy, and then he just comes back and everything that we did, all the friends that we made, all of the places we liberated, everything is undone. And, you know, you never learn about it, maybe, in-game, unless the DM, you know, a messenger tells you to in kind of a, a sequel or something. But if you tell that to the players, it will ruin the entire thing for them. Yeah. What do you mean we just spent two years playing a module where none of our efforts matter? It's terrible. And so pretty much everyone finds a way to make it permanent somehow, where Strahd just doesn't come back. And so I was talking with a few other folks in the Curse of Strahd server. I was trying to figure out, you know, what do we do with this? Why is this here? Or rather, what, would the mod how what do you have to do to make this work? Because narratively, thematically... Curse of Strahd is not satisfying. If you spend all this trying time trying to kill Strahd, then just, he just comes back at the end. And then I was reminded of a book that I read as a child uh, called The Phantom Tollbooth. I forget the author's oh, name, but yeah. it stuck with me for a long time. And the idea is that there's this young boy named Milo. He's very bored, dissatisfied with the world. He's very melancholic, very depressed, very cynical. And then one day he gets this mysterious package in the mail, a kind of build-your-own-kid tollbooth where you kind of get your little car, you drive through it. And it's this kind of, you know, little, I guess, Fisher-Price thing that is just for fun for kids. So he puts it together. He thinks it's dumb. It's stupid. It's childish. You know, this, this guy's like eight, nine years old, maybe 10. But he drives through it anyway, and he comes up the other side in this magical world. This kind of, you know, not quite Narnia. It's a lot more nonsensical than that. But yes. it's a world in which, you know, he, he meets a lot of strange people. He, his mind is broadened. His opportunities expand. He, he learns humor. He learns optimism. He learns to connect with other people. And he ends the day by saving the kingdom and saving all of his friends. And he's, you know, he's got a new lease on life. And he's this, he's this changed kid and that depressed, melancholic, withdrawn, cynical, kind of bitter, you know, boy has been replaced by someone, you know, who again has a, has a much greater renewed positive lease on life. He bids farewell to his friends, drives back and comes out and wakes up in his bedroom. And he finds that the toll booth is no longer there. Instead, there was a note that says, to Milo, we hope that you enjoyed your journey and the friends that you made and the memories that you made and the lessons you learned. We've taken the toll booth to give it to some other child in need of learning those lessons. That really stuck with me. You know, I, I don't know why it came up suddenly here, but the implication of the Phantom Toll Booth is that as, as he's leaving, you know, the final climax, the final battle, the, the kind of ending of the story where you have the big feast, everyone's celebrating. Milo's just looking at the, the two, I think it's princesses or, or kings or something who are arguing. You know, he just got them to reconcile and their reconciliation saved the kingdom, reunited everything. And as he's leaving, they're arguing again. <laughs> and it's just kind of this foreshadowing that, you know, he's going to leave and then everything's going to fall apart again. The whole kingdom's going to go to pieces and then someone else is going to have to come in and fix it. But he's done his part. He's learned his lessons. The way that I put it in the server that day was he has gone through the crucible and come out the other side changed. He has transformed. That was the point this whole time. It, was, it wasn't about him saving the land because the land was never what mattered. What mattered was... This guy, this kid, Milo, as he's called, was him learning to be a better person, to learning to be this more positive, optimistic, in control of his life person that he always should have been. I feel like it's the same with, with Curse of Strahd. That's the way that we approached it. The idea is that what if when you enter Curse of Strahd, because everyone likes to play heroes, we play D&D &D to play heroes. You want to be, you know, Hercules, Ajax, you want to be, you know, Sinbad, whatever. You know, you want to be this really cool character and you want to have swords and shields and magic and all that great stuff. For that reason, it's very hard to make Curse of Strahd, which is a horror module, ostensibly, to be actually scary. You know, what you wind up doing is just making it more of a thriller where the players are more stressed than scared. But, you know, I talk with the players, and what if Curse of Strahd is a story about 
not being a hero, but about becoming a hero, about beginning as a coward, as someone who's selfish, who's cynical or withdrawn or is bearing trauma or wounds. And over the course of the module, you learn to connect with others. You find your courage. You find your driving spirit. You find your will to go on. You find your will to connect. You find your, you rediscover your ability to dream. And through that, that is what allows you to even consider challenging Strahd, let alone take him on. And when you leave Barovia, you take those lessons with you. And we, we did a lot of work, the players leading the charge in this, building up their characters' backstories, finding what they lacked, what they needed, how they might evolve over time. And, you know, some players prefer to kind of map it out in advance. Other players want to kind of explore and discover what might happen. It was a story by the end of it. Um, you know, the epilogues, you know, in a lot of places almost brought me to tears, the way the players were role-playing it. Because you have characters at the beginning were very damaged, very wounded, very traumatized, you know, very withdrawn or cowardly or selfish or lost in life. And by the end of it, they have this new direction. And sure, by the end of it, like I even had Esmeralda, their NPC ally, you know, hint to them like, mm, I'm not so sure Strahd is dead. And the players were, you know, or the characters were like, hmm, we're pretty sure we killed him. But if anything happens, call us up. You know where to find us. We dealt with him once. We'll deal with him again. Because it's about the journey they've been on. Not the villain they killed, but it's about who they've become. And that was an incredibly satisfying ending, I felt, for not just me, but the players as well. We achieved our goals. We found that it was possible to play Curse of Strahd entirely rules as written, where Strahd is this tormenting, active, torturous, terrible villain in your face the whole time, you know, always trying to make you suffer. But in the end, he comes back and it's entirely rules as written. We changed nothing. So that worked out. It was actually a really satisfying story. There was one problem, which is that it was incredibly stressful for everyone involved in, in game and out of game in that you have this very mentally taxing experience of getting into the mind of someone who's very scared, very vulnerable, very much victimized, traumatized, especially with Strahd, inflicting this kind of psychological suffering on these characters and kind of immersing yourself in that can be very difficult. And the players were like champs. Like, again, these are DMs. They're quote-unquote used to losing, so to speak. Twice Bidden was about the gothic horror experience. And we pulled that off in spades. The monstrosity of humans, it's about, you know, personal transformation and all of those wonderful things. But for the average player... They just want to hit things and, you know, kill monsters and make friends and tell cool stories and feel like they're achieving something. And so the average player is not looking for gothic horror. People say they want to be scared. They don't want to be scared. What the average player wants is to play D&D with gothic horror aesthetics, the trappings of horror, if you will. What they want to play is basically The Witcher. They want to play dark fantasy, Bloodborne, basically. Mm, yeah. And so, you know, kind of Dark Souls even. That was one of our big takeaways, which was it was a hugely satisfying experience. We were glad that we'd done it, but it was also, again, very stressful and not the kind of experience that the average D&D player is looking for. It was a smashing success. We did what we set out to do. We proved that Curse of Strahd can be a fantastic module if Run Rules is written, but holy cow, no one should ever actually do that. I really did like the fresh take on like just having random, normal people getting transported and, and kind of having to cobble together what happened and figure it out together. It was definitely a fresh take, like you said, as opposed to kind of the standard, we are the heroes and therefore it's more suspenseful than than it is horror. Whereas if you're just some random person, then of course it's going to freak you out. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I like that take. And yeah, I think based on just the sheer popularity of Twice Bitten, uh, you definitely proved that it could be done and showed uh, how much fun it could be to watch and listen to it as well. You've talked a little bit about it already, about running for other DMs and how most of the time it was pretty good. In fact, you preferred it that way. Did you find any difficulties in running a game for a bunch of other DMs who are also familiar with, number one, the rules, and then number two, with Curse of Strahd? 
you know, were there any hiccups at all that, that you can think of, or was it all pretty much smooth sailing? I wouldn't say so. I'd say that, you know, the fact that everyone was a DM, you know, was, was made, what made it really even more rewarding because everyone came to that table with that sense of generous playing, of wanting to contribute, of bringing real content for other people to be interested in, to engage with, engaging with other people's stories and kind of building those relationships. And so that was really, that was really satisfying. That was very meaningful. Everyone kind of constantly communicating. And, you know, again, they, they did a really good job not metagaming, though. Obviously, all of them have read the modules, you know, some of them more, fr more freshly than others some of them more times than others, but at the same time, everyone's coming to the table with an idea of what's coming up next. For them, it wasn't about winning. And I think that's that's a key thing, where no one was there to really win the module, so to speak. It was more about telling these characters stories. And, you know, because we had those open lines of communication, you know, I was checking in with them, I wanted to make sure that everyone could let me know what they wanted to do with their characters, what they're expecting to have come up, what kind of storylines they wanted to explore. You know, one of the things that I really learned during Twice Bitten is that a lot of us, we treat D&D, &D, what happens at the table, as a sort of sacrosanct stage. You might prep individually in your siloed little cubicle, and then you go up on stage, and everyone else is there, there's a crowd, there are other actors, and you kind of play it all out, and then you leave the stage, and you never talk about it until you go up on stage again. I think that really does D&D &D a disservice, where keeping those lines of communication open, of pulling back of the veil, sure, maybe what happens at the table doesn't feel so sacred anymore, but what you lose in that, in that respect, maybe in kind of some small amount of verisimilitude or immersion, you more than make up for in the immense quality and the collaboration that you can achieve by letting other people into your ideas, your plans, your hopes, your concerns, and finding ways to craft or make space for certain interactions or certain conversations or certain moments, which couldn't have happened otherwise if you'd just been operating in a silo all by yourself. So I think that was hugely satisfying, just having a group where I could talk to people and people were, you know, I had players who were coordinating, you know, different conversations, different moments that they would happen. I wasn't even looped into this. I had no idea sometimes what was coming up. But, you know, wherever I could, I wanted to reach and say, hi, there's this NPC that you wanted to talk to. How do you want to set the conversation up? And so, you know, obviously we're not scripting it, but we are right. consciously making space for these things to happen. I think that was hugely valuable. And I'd recommend, you know, anyone else who, you know, might be a little skeptical or a little scared of pulling back that veil to at least take a little peek through it and see what you get. I think you might be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it is it is fun when you get to the point where your players are like plotting and planning stuff separate from you, uh, but also when they're communicating with you and letting you know, hey, we want to do X, Y, and Z. Can we make it happen? Uh, that's honestly, that's like what it's all about, right? Mm -hmm. is, is giving people the moments that they want to experience. So, yeah. All right. You talked a little bit also about Curse of Strahd Reloaded as kind of your uh, your overarching project, which led to deciding to do Twice Bitten and that kind of thing. So any more background or context you want to give about the project or where people might find information about it, that kind of thing? Yeah. So Curse of Strahd Reloaded, it began as just kind of me trying to share my lessons, the stuff that I'd learned. You know, I actually called it lessons from writing Curse of Strahd at that point. It wasn't Curse of Strahd Reloaded yet. But over right. time, I started to realize just Everyone on the Curse of Strahd subreddit was so creative, coming up with so many great ideas. There were so many great discussions, conversations going on, but it was all spread out. It was all distributed. And there was no kind of unifying theory or idea or direction for people to actually approach. It was just drowning in a sea of hay in a haystack and not knowing how the pieces fit together. There was just so much, but so much of it fell off the map and piecing it together. It was just overwhelming. And so Reloaded, the idea was take all the best of what the community has done to reshape and draw together in this guide that aims to first educate people about what's in the module, about how they should approach it, advise them about how they might want to tweak it, how much they might want to you know, approach it differently, different things that they can add, different mods they can make, different content the community has added. You know, I'm not the only one in this space. I know Mandy Mod with 
her Fleshing Out series, Lunch Break Heroes, with his, I think, Raise the Stakes series, have done excellent work in this area as well. You know, they're fantastic. With Reloaded, what I wanted to do was gather together these pieces into these kind of, you know, this upgraded, more cohesive, comprehensive Curse of Strahd approach that kind of fixes a lot of the holes that I saw in the module. Where, you know, some of the other guides that I saw out there, you know, either at the same time or somewhat later, tried to really, you know, add on to Curse of Strahd. What really interested yeah. in to me in, with me was not adding my own homebrew onto it because as I as I tell people I'm not a very creative person I have no muse but what I do have is <laughs> a very angry plumber who likes hitting things with a wrench that's my muse oh and I, so editing things that I'm into and so finding all those holes in Crystal Trot, the places that don't make sense or that don't quite fit or that players get frustrated with and you know filling those in filling in those gaps papering over things plastering things through. And, you know, taking some community pieces that I thought worked really well. You know, for example, finding a way to let Strahd die permanently to get rid of that blog. In my first campaign, I added in something called the Fanes, which are kind of a holdover from, I think, 3.5's Expedition to Castle Ravenloft that I ported into 5th edition. And the idea being that, you know, Strahd's soul, the, the Strahd's moniker is, I am the ancient, I am the land. And according to old classic Curse of Strahd lore, or Barovia lore, or Strahd lore, you know, he actually is you know, connected to the land of Brovia. It's kind of a Fisher King situation where he has ritualistically bonded himself to the land and he gains power from it in the old, in the old editions. And so the way I saw it was that, you know, the dark powers, the sort of jailers, the powers behind the throne in Curse of Strahd, they own Strahd's soul. He is damned. He is punished. He is a prisoner here. He is their plaything. But because he is the land, because Strahd's soul is bonded to the land of Brovia like this, when he was taken prisoner, the land and all of its people were spirited along with him. Because, you know, traditionally in old Ravenloft lore, the way that it works is that all the actual occupants, the residents of the what are called the Deadly Plains of Dread, like Barovia, that Strahd and the other Dark Lords rule over, they're not actually real. They're just projections. They're, they're soulless. They're made up by the Dark Powers. They're just kind of NPCs, so to speak. But in 5th edition, there are real people with real hopes and dreams and goals and families, and they're stuck here. My thought process was, if you can sever that connection, break Strahd's connection to the land, then he's still the Dark Powers prisoner, but the people and the land can go free. So, you know, that was one instance where I wanted to fill in the gaps, fix something that I saw not quite working, while also trying to be as respectful of preserving the tone and the overall lore as I could. So that's the approach that I tried to take with Reloaded. You know, it, it's been a work in progress for, you know, I think literally five and a half years at this point. I'm pretty much finished with it. I might return at some point. There's a single chapter about Strahd Encounters that eventually I'll write it, but, you know, I keep finding new projects to waste time on. <laughs> like Challenge Ratings 2.0. And, oh, but, you know, yes, I know uh, how it is. <laughs> but on the whole, I'm very happy with how it came out and just kind of providing these new ways to connect threads in the module that are very disparate and unconnected and kind of providing uh, a helping hand to hold either new DMs or more experienced DMs through what can be a very unforgiving and unhelpful module. Cool. All right. So you mentioned to me earlier that you've kind of gotten more into in the last year since you've been done with Twice Bitten you've kind of gotten more into like dramatic questions, story structure, campaign design theory, that kind of thing. I wondered if you had any thoughts about like uh, writing adventures or, or, or being creative in that way and kind of um, the best way to go about it based on your experience tearing apart one of Wizards modules and also, you know, kind of starting to look into the others. So, I mean, I have a little bit of a creative writing background, a little bit of a general writing background. On top of that, I'm also a huge nerd. When I said I'm, I struggle with creativity, but I love editing, you know, for me, I love an analysis. I love understanding things. I love seeing the nuts and bolts that make pieces fit together. And so two of the blogs that really inspired me when I first started off in the fifth edition space were Sly Flourish, Lazy DM, and The Alexandrian. 
Alexandrian is a blog. It's fantastic. He's been doing it for, I think, over a decade at this point. It's just chock full of, literally, it was a goldmine for me, RPG design theory. One of the things that I took from there that I that made a huge impact on me was this concept of node-based design, as well as the concept of prep situations, not plots. The idea being that you're preparing the world. It's, it's a stage, and you're piecing these different stages together as nodes, these different locations where different things might happen, different discoveries are waiting to be made, kind of merging with this life flourish idea of, you know, secrets and clues and understanding, you know, at a really theoretical level, at a narrative level, how you piece those together and make those links. And so while I was getting really into that at some point, I was also getting interested in trying to formalize prep because for session prep, you know, I got a lot of mileage out of the Sly Flourish approach of, you know, getting a sense of, you know, what is the content? Like, how do I organize my notes? But in so far as the content, something I've struggled with in so far as homebrewing is how do I organize things? How do I structure things? Given my creative writing background, I remembered, oh, wait, the the three-act structure is something that exists. The idea of the three-act structure is that it's this way of organizing a narrative. It's kind of analogous to the hero's journey. And the idea is that you're organizing the story in such a way, or at least the opportunity for a story, because again, as I said, as I quoted from the Alexandrian, we're prepping situations, not stories. We're letting the players tell the stories. We're not the ones telling the stories. But through the three-act structure, you're creating the space for the players to tell stories by having a beginning, a middle, and an end, so to speak. And you can make it relatively freeform. You can make it, you know, linear. You can make it sandboxy. But, you know, everything's kind of culminating and leading in different directions. And one of the things, too, that I also took from my writing background was this idea of a dramatic question where, you know, at every point, say, in screenwriting or in a novel, when something is happening on screen, there needs to be a dramatic question. There needs to be some kind of tension. Otherwise, the audience is going to tune out. The reader's not going to be interested. The idea of a dramatic question is it has some kind of context, some kind of goal, and some kind of stakes. So it's, you know, where are you, who are you, what are you trying to do, and what happens if you can't do it or if you fail to achieve it? So, for example, can the players find the lost sun sword and use it to slay Strahd von Zarevich before his minions of darkness come upon them and destroy them and all that they love? That is a dramatic question. It's a very high-level dramatic question. You know, on a scene level, it might be, can the PCs sneak past the guard to get to the Imperial treasury before the artifact within there is moved at at the sound of the next bell at sunset. You know, that kind of tension, right? Uh, You've got clear stakes, a goal, a context, and, you know, people trying to do different things in specific ways. And this doesn't mean that you have to, you know, map out exactly what your players have to do. Like, I don't have to say, you know, you don't have to sneak past the guard. You could fight him. So maybe instead the dramatic question is, can the players infiltrate the castle and get past the guards without raising the alarm and allowing the treasury thing to be destroyed or moved, right? And so you're still preserving freedom for players, but you're directing them on very clear paths. And so one of the things that I found starting to piece all these things together over the past few months was combining this idea of a three-act structure that I've been developing myself with this idea of the node-based design that I'd been taking from the Alexandrian. Kind of putting it together and taking it into a third account, which was the, the Dresden Files RPG, which you know is based on the Fate system. I definitely recommend everyone, you know, at least read through a different RPG at least once. Not that's not D D. They can be helpful for opening your mind to new ideas. And the Dress yeah. Files RPG has a large focus on, you know, characters and characters driving the story along. At the same time, I was reading that. I was also kind of struggling with what's called the exploration pillar in D D. In D D, you have combat, socializing, and exploration—the three pillars, so to speak. Combat has a lot of clear rules. Socializing doesn't really have rules, but you know, we socialize in real life, so we kind of muddle on through. Exploration doesn't really have much to go off of, and people are very split on, you know, are there enough rules for it? What about foraging? What about the ranger? And, you know, I wound up asking around, and everyone agreed that exploration for them means discovering things, seeing new places, yeah. exploring, solving mysteries, that sort of thing, experiencing new new things. Yeah. And so what I wanted distilling that to was this idea, 
taking the Alexandrians node idea, right? The idea I see it is that every node in area, this is like a room or a location or a setting or a set piece of some kind, has a few different components. It's got, you know, details, it's the context, it's where you are, right? You're on a beach, there are trees, you know, there's there's ocean waves, whatever. And then it's got discoveries. This is the exploration pillar. It's got things that you can learn about it. There are actually giant crabs burrowed under the sand that come up, spring up if anyone walks over them. They're not going to attack you, but they're going to spring up and surprise and scuttle off. That's a discovery. And then we've got developments, which are things that unfold, that we've got players discovering things now, and the world is evolving around them. So, you know, as the players make their way across the beach, the first time they awaken a crab, you know, yeah, this triton, this water genocide maybe comes wading out of the water and says they have disturbed this, you know, ancient, you know, sacred beach, and they must atone for it somehow, or they must explain themselves. And so this is development, we've got the exploration pillar going on. And now suddenly we've also got a face, what the Dresden Files RPG calls these important NPCs that represent a location. They have a motivation, they have a personality, they have goals, they have relationships to other people. Now we've got our socializing pillar, right? And then finally, there might be some problem that might happen. Maybe this Triton, this face, challenges the PCs to a duel to see, you know, if they're worthy to walk upon the speech or something. I would call this, you know, the strife. This is, and this is the combat pillar. You know, maybe it's not combat per se, but maybe it's a skill challenge. Maybe it's some kind of puzzle they need to solve. It's, it's some application of the character sheet to the world to try to overcome an obstacle or challenge, right? Through this design in a microcosm, you've got an, a single node that has all three pillars of D&D design, of D&D gameplay. And because you've got this template, at least for me, I find templates very useful, where you can just kind of fill them in very easily. Instead of being creative, I could just plug and chug. That's what's easy for me. I color in the lines. And so once you have that, once you've got a node, you can then connect them using the Alexandrian's node design theory, where you know maybe you have a sandbox, or it's what I like to call flexilinear, where you have a single node, kind of linear, that then expands into like three different areas with clues leading to different areas. And then once you have all the clues from all those three nodes, they lead you to another node that has the climax, or that leads you to another expansion or sandbox or whatever. Or you can just have a single linear where you just go node to node to node to node, and that's the story. It's just beginning to finish. And then you combine that with a three-act structure, and suddenly we have this, this, this way of telling a story from very high level to very low level, where at the very high level, you have an idea of piecing things together to make for this, you know, this engaging narrative of growth, of discovery, of stakes, of things unfolding, and of you know, a, a real story that the characters are going through that they have the space to create. But then at the lower level, you have this place where the nodes are connecting and at you know the session design level, you have a way for players to go from place to place and reasons for them to be there. And then you go a step lower at the exact node level, you have this idea of you know the, the pillars of gameplay and you're building them, developing them, and you're really building out the world and giving the players all these levels to interact with it. I, I published an article about it on uh, Flute's Loot, where I'm a contributor to. You know, kind of going through it, I had these pretty graphics. And it's just something, it's just a project that I really enjoyed working on, where getting a sense of how we can understand and apply this theory of game design, of narrative design, because D&D is, it's consumer narrative. It's like a TV show, it's like a book, but it's also a game for the players to create their own things, their own possibilities. So there's game design in there as well. And so you have to factor those things in as well. And oh, I mean, let's admit it, DMing is an art as well as a science, but there is a bit of a science to it. There's some understanding we can bring, some idea of how game theory or game design theory and narrative design theory work. And I think bringing those together lets us tell so much more powerful stories, not to our players, but with them. And I think that's incredibly valuable. And I had a lot of fun working on this project. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Flute's Loot because uh, one of my friends posted an article that you wrote uh, today in his Discord server. And I was like, oh, I'm going to talk to him tonight. That's funny. Yeah, uh, it was the uh, How to Become a Better D&D Player um, Uh, that you wrote. Number one in that article. Be a generous player. Be a generous role player, just like Twice Bitten, you know? 
Yeah, pretty funny. Uh, that's that's on um, Knocked Prone's Discord server, Kate. He was my very first guest for uh, listeners keeping track at home. But yeah, awesome. You mentioned you, you're contributing to blogs, you're working on this CR 2.0. You've had this ongoing project of Curse of Strahd Reloaded that you haven't revisited in a while, but you may. Any other projects you've got working on? You also mentioned your Patreon, but yeah, blogging, streaming, Patreon. What else do you have going on? The big project that I'm currently working on, I'm kind of explored blogging for a little bit. I had I had or have a Substack, but I'm sh- looking to shift toward YouTube at the moment because one of the things that I've always had a dream of for the past you know two years or so was kind of giving this very again. I, I love theory. I love I love teaching. I love scaffolding understanding and helping people you know improve their skills. One of the things that I'm hoping to do with my current YouTube channel is publish videos about, you know, what I like to call DMing 101 or 201 or 301, this kind of DMing Academy resource that in a very simple manner goes through each, you know, skill that you might need to be a DM, either beginner, intermediate, or advanced, and just very simply and cleanly and concisely go through them and explain what they are, what you need to know, how to apply them, make it this very easily digestible curriculum. Because right now there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, there's some fantastic content creators, Matt Colville, how to be a great GM. Yep. But, you know, at least for my tastes, they're, they're kind of very broad, very, you know, and this is not to diss them. I, I love their work. Very chatty, very, very anecdote based, uh, somewhat lengthy videos. And so one thing that I'm hoping to bring to it, at least for me, is, you know, you know, I can't speak for anyone else, but on YouTube, I have the attention span of a gnat these days. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do is kind of make these, you know, shorter, kind of more bite-sized, you know, videos, maybe four to seven minutes, where people can, you know, find a topic that they're interested in and they want to learn more about and get a sense for it. So I've got a lot of ideas about it for, you know, NPC characterization, the kind of story stuff we've been talking about, combat balance. Some of the newer DMs in my Patreon have asked me about, you know, say, ability checks, skill checks, kind of a lot of fundamentals like that, organizing the table, uh, managing the table, keeping combat working fast, all that kind of stuff that, you know, you kind of just get through osmosis, trying to putting it in a more formalized Mm -hmm. space where you have players who can just come there and just get this information in a very easy way. The first video I'm working on is a prototype now. I'm calling, you know, How DMing Works. Obviously, a very broad title, but it's all about what I'm calling the scene cycle, which is this basic back and forth of, you know, the DM describes a scene, the DM prompts the players, the players state how they act or how, what their intention is, and then the DM adjudicates the consequences, and then you repeat that. So that's kind yeah. of the inaugural video I'm working on right now. I'm getting a sense of, you know, video editing, audio editing, which, you know, I'm not entirely a stranger to, but getting ready to hopefully put that up at some point. You know, who knows? By the time this goes up, maybe it'll be published. I have no idea. But, you know, <laughs> the idea hopefully is, is to get more comfortable with it and then over time build it more of an archive so that people can you know, have a place to go to when they're looking to develop their skills. Yeah. At the very least, by the time this comes out, I'll make sure to link to your YouTube where you already have one video up about running a villain and um, people can find uh, whatever else you've got since today there. So, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Honestly, I've been trying to think about how or what kind of content I could make that is more focused on newer DMs. I think my show is is a good place to start. But just because I know that if the movie does well that comes out in March, right, if it like even does kind of well, there's going to be a huge amount of more Mm. people getting into the hobby. Oh, yeah. And that content's going to be what they're looking for, you know. So, yeah, definitely a big opportunity there. For sure. It's, it's an exciting time for the hobby. We're, you know, in kind of a golden age right now, bigger than ever before. You know, we've got one D&D coming out. Wizards seeming to actually take some of the balance criticisms into consideration. I'm optimistic for where we're going. The community is, seems to be stronger than ever. There's some good stuff coming out, people creating fantastic concepts. And, you know, I'm excited to be a part of it. Excited to see where it all goes. Totally. 
Uh, all right. If you had to boil down uh, the best advice you've been given or that you have thought up yourself for running games into maybe one or two points of advice, what would those be for people out there running games? Always understand where your players are coming from and where they're going. Keep in touch with your players. Check in with them. See what they're interested in. See what their plans are. See what their expectations are. Not only does that minimize your prep, not only does that keep them plugged into the game and the world, it also helps you because at the table, I find that instead of creating this idea for a story and expecting my players to just go along it, by understanding their incentives, what they care about, what motivates them, I can manufacture things, you know, massage the campaign a little bit to be a little more interesting to them, to, I'm going to put this, you know, kind of bluntly, to manipulate my players into doing <laughs> what's easier for me. Yeah. Where, you know, that's kind of where the dramatic questions comes in, because if you have strong dramatic questions, and if you really focus on that, if you have very clear stakes, very clear goals, things that your players are going to want to accomplish, and you make clear what the stakes are if they don't accomplish that, and how they can go about doing it, it becomes very, very easy to give them a sense of direction, and I guess to speak a little less charitably, to funnel them in different areas. It's the most powerful tool you can have. And obviously, you don't want to use it all the time, right? You want to give your players freedom, you want to be surprised. But at the same time, you want to have a sense of momentum. You want to be able to drive things forward and you also want to be kind to yourself because let's face it, we don't have infinite time for prep. We've got to be judicial in how we do it. So really focusing on those dramatic questions, understanding what makes your players tick, giving them that direction, that those stakes, that understanding, those understanding what goals motivate them and putting those together to make those really strong, sharp, clean, dramatic questions. I think that would be my biggest takeaway because once you have that, everything else is just bookkeeping. Hmm. Well said. Well said indeed. I love thinking about the player's perspective, what they want, where they're going. You mentioned um, Sly Flourish, his prep method earlier, and I found that that really helped me focus on that, like thinking about each of the players individually and, and kind of what they're looking for, also trying to communicate with them. You mentioned you do that a lot, like trying to make sure that they're, they're in a good spot and that they're kind of accomplishing the stuff they want to accomplish. I think it's all very good advice. Uh, all right. Last but not least, where can everybody find you on the internet? You know, if they want to follow along or, or um, consume your content, that kind of thing. Sure. So, I mean, I've posted a lot on Reddit. Um, so if you just check my profile, I'm sure you can find every post that I've published. It's basically all just D&D and Curse of Strahd stuff. I'm dragging a card on there. Contributed a number of articles to Flute Loot. So I have an author page there as well if you just Google it. Currently, my big projects are the Patreon and the YouTube channel that I'm currently, you know, again, prototyping, getting a sense for it. The Patreon, I'm at patreon.com slash dragnacarta. Ostensibly, it's a way for people to support my work if they want, but I'm also, you know, I'm very passionate about trying to make ways, you know, I'm producing monthly workshops on it. I've got what I call the DMs Toolkit, which is all the templates and, you know, that sort of kind of DMing resources I've come up with so far. I try to publish, you know, homebrew content on there when I can, give campaign advice and mentoring, which has, you know, been really, really rewarding, as well as a fantastic community of folks that have come together on there. And on YouTube, I'm at youtube.com slash c slash dragnacarta which is, again, currently, it's just got a random Patreon workshop that I published like nine months ago. It's all about playing and building villains, especially with a focus on Strahd. But, you know, hopefully in the very near future, it'll start filling up with new videos. So feel free to take a look at there if you want to take a look at the currently empty real estate that'll get filled in soon. Hopefully. Amazing. And uh, I will be adding in your link tree as well, just because I think it's a good uh, yes. kind of central link that's got everything there, but, but I'll make sure to link uh, this other stuff too. Other than your Twitter account, so if, if people were following you, uh, anyway, uh, that's a subject for a different time. Um, okay. Alas. Yes. <laughs> what a weird thing. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Been a ton of fun to chat. I can tell you're really passionate 
about what you do. And um, it's it's always fun to, to listen to kind of a very cerebral DM talk about the way they go about things, but just as kind of a, a different style, you know, everybody's got their own style. And so I love talking to people who are focused on kind of the, the crunch and the mechanics of things just as much as people who are focused on the, the role playing or whatever other aspects uh, really interest them. So yeah, thanks for your perspective and thanks for your time. And I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thank you. Same to you. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for our weekly sneak peek into next week's guest. Next week, we're going to hear from DM Dave, the DM of Tomes of the Chaos Bard, a family-friendly 5e podcast that has been running for almost two years now. As DMs, we want to tell a story, right? We have this fantastic story that we want to tell, and the players are there to help us tell it. They have stories, too. And to involve both their story and our stories makes it that much more richer. And a lot of times I found it with my own players that some of them are just like, no, I'm here to have fun. It's like, okay, I won't worry so much about pushing the agenda that I think you have because you don't have an agenda, but I convince myself that you do. And so being able to have that open communication of like, they're just here for the ride. All right, I can throw some stuff at them and they'll run with it because they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll go with that because I had no idea. To hear more of DM Dave's advice on involving players and making sure that you are matching their energy and much more, tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks. Here's a friendly reminder to rate and review the show and share it with your friends and family who play TTRPGs as well. New reviews will be read out at the end of the episode as a thank you. Thank you to the team at T4C Studios, The Dragon, for help editing and producing this episode. As a reminder, if you are a content creator, either podcast or video, check out videoeditors.online or podcasteditors.online as it's the same team who helps produce this show as runs those websites. One last plug here for Two Hot One Shot. Please go to Kickstarter, check it out, throw us a few dollars, it would mean a ton and it will help us continue to try to make cool stuff. My friend Matthew and my friend Jordan and I put a ton of work into it. We worked on it all summer and we'd really appreciate it if you would help us make this dream a reality. All right, let's get to the last few thank yous here. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Xcat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music that plays underneath while we're roleplaying is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And as always, until next time, roll some Nad 20s for me.